Welcome everyone to the fourth episode of this podcast series called Environmental Justice Litigation. Uh, this podcast series is part of the Students' Project at the University of Oslo. Uh, my name is Iva Svalina and my co-host is Konrad Sandvik. Uh, Konrad, who are we speaking with today? Well, today we have secured an interview with Beate Schofjell. She's a law professor at the University of Oslo and uh, her expertise is within business, law and sustainability. So she has done a lot of important uh, work within social foundations and planetary boundaries. And we hope she, she can relate her work uh, in these areas to the Norwegian climate lawsuit. So without further ado, I think we'll just roll the interview. So today we are joined by Beate Schofjell. She's a law professor at the Faculty of Law at the University of Oslo. And she's an expert at business law and sustainability. So thank you so much for being with her, being here with us today, Beate. My pleasure. Uh, thank you for being here and we can start immediately. Uh, can you tell us what the Norwegian climate lawsuit was from your perspective and how it unfolded in the courts? Yes, I will be happy to do that. It was the first uh, climate lawsuit in Norway where environmental uh, organizations sued the state when they opened up a new round of uh, licensing in, uh, in the Arctic, a uh, new round of licensing for oil and gas exploration in the Arctic. And the environmental organizations uh, um, argued that this was a violation of uh, the right that the, in, that the Norwegian constitution gives us all to a viable environment for us and future generations. Yeah, so that's a great, uh, great summation. I was uh, wondering if you could, if you could uh, explain a bit more just what the section one twelve uh, establishes and what the, in your opinion, and what the Supreme Court found that it establishes or how they interpreted it. Mm. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> The Norwegian Constitution, uh, Article 112 in the first provision, gives us uh, a clear right to a viable uh, environment for us and for future generations. In the second provision, it gives uh, everybody in Norway a right to information so that we can pursue that right. And then in the third provision, it says that the state shall ensure that uh, that these uh, provisions are uh, followed up that's not a direct quotation but uh, just an explanation of the of the content this last provision was changed in 2014 when there was a, a general uh, revision of the constitution where we got a new chapter on human rights and the environmental provision that we had had since uh, 1992 was then placed in that chapter on human rights in my opinion, the change in the last provision of Article 112 wasn't really a strengthening of the provision. It was more a clarification of the, of the content. But for all of those who had uh, feared or argued that uh, Article uh, 110B, as it was called before 2014, that it didn't give um, um, people in Norway a right to to pursue uh, the, this um, this provision before the courts that really um, strengthened the provision because the third uh, provision of the article went from 
rather vague wording that that made it clear that it was the state that was to do what uh, what what had to be do had to be done under that article. Uh, it was then um, uh, clarified by including the word shell. So that was a major change. Uh, uh, in my opinion, clarification, and uh, for those who didn't see it beforehand, a strengthening, because it was then set out clearly that the state shall follow up these provisions. Um, and uh, importantly, the committee that prepared this uh, uh, proposal um, for the parliament, they wrote very clearly that this was done to make it clear that the state has a duty to do what is necessary to ensure that we all have a viable environment, both those of us who are living now and future generations. But the Norwegian Supreme Court, when they discussed this, they somehow evaded the whole issue by, uh, uh, by quite evasive language around these changes without going to the, really, to the heart of the change that was made. And this is especially clear in the English translation of the of the judgment where they used shall both with reference to the old provision and to the new one. Uh, so they, they managed to dilute the whole change of the provision and make it sound like there wasn't really anything that, uh, that, was, uh, that was meant to be uh, changed or strengthened or, or clarified in the provision. They refer to it as, uh, as just a, a, a pure linguistic change. So, so that, that is very misleading in my opinion, because in my opinion, it was clear already from 1992 that the environmental provision in the constitution was meant to have legal significance because the parliament rejected adopting a provision, uh, an article in 1992 that would, have, that would be a mere political statement. They didn't want that in the constitution. So they adopted a, an article that was meant to give a pure, uh, that was meant to give a, a, a clear uh, a legal uh, right to, to us in Norway. Um, but unfortunately, many lawyers tend to be very backward looking when they analyze law. So when uh, legal scholars uh, were asked whether this provision could give anybody a right uh, then they looked backwards at the decisions that had been made by the court and said, no, we haven't had any such cases, so it isn't a right, which, which is a fallacy, a logical fallacy in itself, because there always has to be one case that is the first case. And if you say in the first case that this isn't a right that can be pursued before the courts because we haven't had any such cases, then you will never have a right that can be pursued before the courts. That was the first logical fallacy that, was, that has been made in the interpretation of uh, the environmental provision, in the, the environmental article in the Constitution. The second one is, uh, concerns uh, the fact that the, the, the uh, environmental article clearly gives the state a lot of discretion for how to ensure that we have a viable env environment. That is... That is uh, um, also uh, very understandable. It would be strange if it was set out in one environmental provision in the constitution exactly what the state should do decades ahead. So there is, uh, there is discretion for the state to decide how to do this, 
which is also important for the state to have because the state has to balance a lot of different interests. But uh, if the state uh, doesn't protect the environment to a sufficient uh, extent, then it will go beyond that discretion that the article gives it and violate that provision. And in my opinion, it is obvious that that is what the state has done here. But in the discussion about the uh, environmental article, somehow uh, a leap has been made from, okay, so it's up to the state to decide how it will do it, to become, so it's up to the state whether it will do it. And, and that's, that's uh, comparable to if you see a burning house and the fire department has rushed out to this burning house and they are standing there looking at it and just talking. And you go up to them and say, what are you doing? The house is burning. Why aren't you doing your job? And then they say, well, it's up to us how to put the fire out. And yes, that's obvious, but you're not doing anything. Well, it's up to us how we do it. So, so that's, that's what's happened in this, uh, in this situation, which is why it was so important that the clarification was made in 2014, that, that it is a legal duty. And of course, you can imagine a legal duty where it's not possible for anybody to go to court and say that the rights that I can uh, draw from this legal duty that the state has um, has been violated, that that, that's, that they cannot go to court and say that. But, but an environmental article in the Constitution that sets out a right for us and a, a legal duty for the state to follow it up, uh, of course, uh, also needs to be possible to pursue before, before the courts. Yeah, and in this specific case, uh, of course, the, the issue was regarding um, the giving out of oil licenses uh, in the, the North Barren Sea and whether drilling for oil should be something that the government keeps on doing if it has a duty to protect the environment uh, according to Section 112. So you've talked before about um, planetary boundaries and could you put that work into perspective uh, um, in the in this case as to whether the government should keep drilling for for oil yes i will be very happy to do that thank you for that question because in the discussion from 1992 to 2014 about what what this environmental article in the constitution actually means one of the problems for legal scholars analyzing it including ulla christian Fokal, who did a very a very good job in an extensive article analyzing uh, analyzing uh, the, the legal status here, was that it was difficult to say what, what are the limits, what are the, what are the minimum requirements that the state needs to fulfill if it, if it is to be able to say that we have done what we were supposed to. We have done the, the minimum that is necessary to do to, to ensure a viable environment for, for Norwegian citizens now and future generations. This is something that Ole Christian Fokal discusses in this article, that it's difficult to find these, these guidelines for what are the minimum environmental provisions. But what we can do, and what I have done in my own work on this, is to look beyond the law and look at natural science. Because if we're going to understand what is the minimum that we need to do to ensure a viable environment in Norway and on this planet for humanity, we need to look at what natural science is saying about this. 
And natural science has uh, developed a lot in this area since uh, 1992. And in the groundbreaking article in 2009 uh, with uh, Professor Johan Rockström, uh, head of the Stockholm Resilience Center then, as lead author, uh, these limits were actually identified. The Rockström brought together environmental scientists from different fields in different parts of the world to, for the first time, identify where these limits are that we all intuitively understand must exist. We all intuitively, if we think about it, understand that there must be limits to how much we can take out of nature and how much we can dump back into nature, whether it is in the ground or, or uh, freshwater, seawater or the air, and still expect the world to be, the planet to be a safe space for humanity. And that's what Rockström and his co-authors did in 2009 in the article, Planetary Boundaries, a Safe Operating Space for Humanity, they, for the first time, identified nine Earth systems that uh, we need to uh, avoid uh, messing with if we want the planet to continue being a safe uh, space for humanity. And climate is one of them. So it is obvious then from natural science that staying within uh, certain limits of uh, um, disruption of, of the climate is one of those minimum requirements that we need to stay within. There are also others. So this is also relevant to what Norway does and doesn't do when it comes to biodiversity. But let, let's stick to climate uh, now. But so, was, uh, sorry, sorry. No, continue. Yes. No, so... Um, um, so, so on the one hand, we have the natural science that says that uh, we have to, to stay within certain limits when it comes to climate change if we are not going to disrupt the very basis uh, for, for good, uh, a good existence for humanity on, on this planet. And climate change is also one of what they refer to as core boundaries. So while all of these Earth systems interconnect with each other and, uh, and influence, influence each other. Climate change is a core boundary, which means that, that pushing that boundary, transgressing that boundary is enough in itself to disrupt uh, the, the uh, relatively stable state we have had on, the, uh, on this planet for the last 11, 12,000 years. Um, so that's the natural science part. And then we, in addition, have uh, a, a global political consensus of where this boundary should be. And that, will, that is based on, an, on natural science at the time. And it could be argued that maybe it, uh, the, the goals that are set out in the Paris Agreement of, of aiming to stay within uh, beneath two degrees uh, warning compared to pre-industrial states and preferably between 1.5% warming, that, that that is maybe not even enough, but certainly we can say we, we mustn't go beyond that. So uh, global, uh, there's a global political consensus, which Norway has been an advocate for and signed up to. Norway has signed up to the Paris Agreement, of course, and Norway has also signed up to two different de declarations saying that Norway wants to be a leader in this area, wants to be a coalition of those that go ahead and make sure that the world uh, works to, to fulfill the Paris uh, Agreement. 
So the Norwegian government, the Norwegian parliament has shown its clear commitment to staying within the Paris Agreement goals. And we have a very clear natural science basis for saying we really have to do this because otherwise it risks disrupting the very basis for uh, for uh, a viable environment for us and for future generations. So it is so clear that when the Norwegian state then um, continues to hand out uh, uh, licenses to explore for more oil and gas, when we know that most of the uh, hitherto identified reserves of oil and gas need to stay in the ground if we are going to have even a chance to achieve the Paris Agreement goals, then of course Norway is going uh, beyond what it has a discretion to do. It's not a balancing act. It is a clear violation of the Constitution, a clear violation of the purpose of the, of the Paris Agreement. And Norway, the Norwegian state is doing this with so much newspeak that it reminds me time and time again of George Orwell's 1984. And what you mentioned and what is interesting is that the Supreme Court mentioned IPCC scientific reports in the judgment, but still they didn't, they didn't conclude anything regarding them. They just ignored it. Yes. And also before that, you mentioned rights of future generations, which are also explicitly mentioned in Article 112, which also weren't touched upon in the judgment at all. Hmm. Uh, which brings us to the next question regarding the impact assessment. Can you comment on the impact assessment? There were some parts which, was, which were disputed, for example, combustion emissions abroad, which weren't included and should have been included uh, based on some of the Supreme Court judges. But what else was missing in the impact assessments from your opinion? Yes, uh, thank you. Yes, the, the impact assessment before the opening up of the 23rd round of licensing was shockingly weak. Uh, I had heard before uh, I went through and assessed these impact assessments in detail, uh, the argument that made that uh, environmental impact assessments are only made to support a decision that, that is already in place. So you know that you want to do something and then you do the impact assessments and then, uh, and then uh, write the decision so that it somehow fits with these. I didn't think it could be that bad, but my assessment of the environmental impact assessments made by the Norwegian state was that it was even worse. Uh, and I know that there are uh, natural scientists that are frustrated by being, being asked again and again to produce reports on what impact will, a, uh, will an oil spill have on bird life in this region, for example. They submit the same reports again and again and it is very clear from, from even from the wording of the in, impact assessment that there was no uh, proper um, uh, assessment of whether one should open up this area or not. The only discussion was how it should be opened up. So, okay, so there is a risk of local pollution, so then we must be careful when we open up this area. Um, when it came, when it comes to, to climate change and the impacts that continued oil and gas exploration um, under the auspices of the Norwegian state has, 
That was just deferred to a discussion that happens elsewhere. They didn't go into the climate uh, impacts. They said that this is a discussion for elsewhere. And I tried to follow that lead, and I didn't find anything that was relevant to the impact assessment where they really discussed what this means. And according to, to European Union rules on impact assessment that Norway also obligated to follow, one is meant to assess the, uh, the impact of one decision on the environment in the context of other decisions that are also made. So if something is on the breaking point, then you can't say, well, uh, our activity will, will just be a very small contribution, so that's fine. If you can see that our contribution will maybe be that, um, that last drop that, that brings this beyond the breaking point, then according to EU law, you're not allowed to do it. Norway didn't go into that. And also Norway didn't uh, assess uh, the effects on the indigenous uh, uh, population at all. There is also an article in the Norwegian constitution that, uh, that gives indigenous peoples rights and, um, and in, is meant to ensure that their interests are considered. This was, uh, this was also just ignored. Yes, you, t you talk about uh, having to uh, think about stuff as breaking points. And uh, can, can you think of global climate like that? Or is it too hard to say that, we, that our emissions will have anything to say? You know, critics will say that Norway is a small country. Our emissions don't really change the world emissions. And uh, uh, us selling more oil will give a lot of substantial benefits for Norway and not really impact the global climate uh, uh, that much. And uh, in uh, if you talk to some experts, they will even claim that Norwegian gas will help reduce the global uh, climate change. Mm. Uh, can you comment uh, to those points? Yes, I'd be very happy to do that. Uh, Norway is one of the largest uh, producers of fossil fuels in the world. So uh, Norwegian fossil fuels contribute to climate change. That's the one thing with the direct contribution. Um, and then secondly, Norway is an, a not insignificant global actor. So as long as Norway continues with this new speak saying that, yes, we must achieve the Paris Agreement goals. Yes, we must achieve this green transition and limit uh, global warming and reduce fossil fuel emissions. Uh, and we will do this by continuing with oil and gas exploration because that is so important to give the poor people in Africa energy and gas is, uh, is, be is better than coal, never then explaining why do we need the oil. As long as they continue with that, how can Norway then, as one of the richest countries in the world, expect other countries to say that, okay, we, we won't continue with oil and gas exploration. We will do what is necessary. And conversely, if Norway, as one of those that has gone out and said that, that we are going to be one of the front runners to achieve the Paris Agreement, if they have gone, gone out and said, okay, we, what they should have said several years ago, we are going to stop oil and gas uh, exploitation in the Arctic, because that was the obvious first no-brainer that when we cannot exploit all of the oil and gas that is possible to exploit, 
the, the, the obvious things to cut must be oil and gas exploitation in especially vulnerable areas like the Arctic. Secondly, we will ensure that we are not uh, through Statoil now, Equinor, involved uh, in uh, especially uh, climate harmful and environmentally harmful uh, uh, projects uh, like uh, the, the tar sand exploitation in, uh, in Canada. And then after they'd done that, they could have said, uh, okay, and now we are going to make a plan to wean Norway off oil. The argument that is often made then by people who just want to continue is, oh, but it would be a catastrophe if we just turned everything off overnight. Nobody has said turn everything off overnight. But the longer Norway uh, waits to, to make this transition, the more abrupt it will be also for, for the Norwegian economy. And the Norwegian Supreme Court, uh, the, the majority of the Supreme Court, said that while Norway should have done a better uh, impact assessment, they can do that later on in the process. But if they really meant that, I don't think they would have said that because that will be more harmful for the state to do it later on. Because the later on in the process they do it, the greater is the risk that they will be sued by companies that have been given these licenses. Uh, so so there, are, there are so many false arguments and so much newspeak in this uh, that it makes me extremely frustrated as, uh, as a law professor who takes the constitution seriously, who takes environmental science seriously, and who takes the role of, uh, of the Norwegian state uh, in the world seriously. It makes me extremely frustrated to see how this country that once was uh, an environmental leader and the country that, that gave the world uh, the, uh, if not the, the, uh, the, the concept itself, brought attention to the concept of sustainable development through Guru Hallenbrindland's work with the, with the, in, in the, uh, the uh, World Commission for, uh, for our common future. This country is destroying its own environment, no, sorry, its own reputation and, uh, uh, and contributing to destroying our possibilities for a safe and just uh, future. So I, of course, uh, really sorry, Eva, <laughs> but uh, I, I, of course, really agree with your uh, with your arguments here. So I'm just wondering those points that you're arguing uh, are really close or even uh, going over the border into political arguments that like a political debate that's being had in Norway at this point, where there's still uh, very far from agreement, where the majority of the country seems to still be wanting to keep drilling for oil. So how uh, how could the court come in and uh, sort of overrule the will of the people or parliament when it comes to these things, whether Norway should take a more active place going forward and whether we should uh, stop drilling for oil? That's a very good question. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. So um, and an argument was made against the climate lawsuit already before it was brought that it would be undemocratic because it's up to the parliament to decide if the parliament has said yes, then we cannot go to the courts. Uh, that, that is uh, a false argument in my opinion because uh, we, we have a division of powers in the Norwegian society as uh, in many democracies around the world. Uh, where, where the government has its role, the parliament has its role, and the courts has, uh, have their role. 
And the courts are a very uh, important safety valve. If something has gone totally wrong in the government and parliament, the, the courts are where we can go in a democracy. If we cannot go to the courts, and if the politicians that are elected don't rectify the, the damage that has been done, what are people meant to do? I mean, the Extinction Revolution has been called a, a very undemocratic organization. But while I might not agree with everything that they do and say, I totally understand the frustration that that organization is informed by. So it is very democratic. It is a part of our democratic system that we can go to the courts and be heard if we believe that uh, the parliament has violated our rights. But the Supreme Court of Norway, the majority, decided to, uh, to, to let everything be decided by the parliament. So if it's been decided by the parliament in some way, then we don't really want to intervene. But what they didn't, first of all, I think that's wrong in itself because the court there undermines uh, its role as a guardian of the constitution. Uh, and secondly, what hasn't then really been brought into that, uh, that argument is the fact that the parliament didn't have a good basis for its decision because the impact assessments were so weak. So when the parliament based their decision on that, they were basing it on flawed premises. And uh, I, if I'm not mistaken, there, there has been a poll saying, uh, showing uh, that, that the uh, environmental concerns in the Norwegian population are rising. But even if the argument could be made that most Norwegians want the Norwegian state to continue with oil and gas exploration, I don't know if that's true, but if we say that it is true, and that is also based on the same uh, faulty uh, impact assessments because the Norwegian, um, the, uh, the Norwegian community as a whole doesn't really know what a bad basis there was for this. Plus, we, we are not Switzerland. We don't decide uh, in all important questions by popular vote. We decide them by electing uh, a parliament that is meant to ensure uh, that uh, that our rights are protected and the government is meant to execute uh, the decisions that will that will follow our rights and the courts are meant to protect us if uh, if something uh, goes wrong. But this whole political argument is also an argument against um, any kind of change, and that's also a fallacy that I see a lot in legal political discussions. So. Uh, if we talk about changing things, then it's political, then it's radical, then it's activist. But if we talk about continuing exactly as we have been doing and not changing the law, not changing policies, then it's all good. That's neutral. But law is never neutral. Law is never value neutral. Law is always the result of, uh, uh, of political struggles over time. And if we are not willing to discuss changes and if the court is not willing to take uh, on itself it, the role it has as a, as, a, as a guardian of the constitution, then we will have this continuous perpetuation of uh, wrongs. Were you surprised by this decision? No, I was not surprised by the Supreme Court decision because I know that the Norwegian Supreme Court has a reputation for being state-friendly. 
Um, and I also realized, as I wrote uh, uh, about in my article on the legal status of oil and gas exploitation, the case of Norway, that there are many psychological factors that also make it difficult for judges to take this kind of brave first decision in a country. Uh, I thought it was an open question, um, but I was very, very disappointed by the way that the court argued, because they could have uh, gone uh, into the case much more thoroughly and made a much more open assessment of the case. And in my opinion, if they had done that, they would have found for the environmental organizations. Uh, because in my opinion, it, it is an obvious case of violation of the constitution, what the, uh, what the Norwegian state is doing. But I got a really bad feeling already before uh, the court uh, uh, tried the case, before the Supreme Court tried the case, because three judges were disqualified from the case, three women, um, with, with varying argumentation. And it might have been right to disqualify at least all of them. I don't think it was right to disqualify all three of them. And I note that there was no similar discussion of whether uh, judges that had a close connection to the state in their previous jobs or in any other way, whether they should be disqualified. If we'd had the discussion, maybe we wouldn't have been able to, to have enough judges to decide the case. So if we weren't going to disqualify judges who had a close connection to the state, how could we then disqualify a judge that had been involved in an environmental organization in her youth? Uh, so, that, so that gave me a bad feeling to start with. And I must say also, although that was not a decision that was made in this case, I wish that Arnfin Bordson uh, who was on leave uh, to be a judge in the Court of Justice of, uh, in, in the European Court of Human Rights, that he had been in that case. Because uh, I, I think that he has much more progressive and open views on the role of the courts in these kind of cases uh, than, than many of the, the others had. But I, I think the court, the court, the, the majority of the Supreme Court, they failed their role and they did it in a way that made me lose uh, all respect for them. So you talked about the Supreme Court being uh, historically state-friendly. And um, uh, I was wondering if you could uh, touch uh, a little bit on the history of uh, the Norwegian Supreme Court uh, overruling the state in any cases. And also if you could comment on the general harshness of the, um, of the decision like how high standard they put in this uh, case, and uh, for instance, almost as to defang the Section 112. Mm. Yeah, so the, uh, the Norwegian Supreme Court has historically been seen as very state-friendly, uh, which, is, which is easy to understand based on the fact, facts, because most judges used to come directly from other uh, positions in the state, like they worked in, in the Ministry of Law, and then they became... Uh, Ministry of Justice, sorry, and then they then they became Supreme Court judges. Th that fact has uh, changed a bit over the last years. So there is no, now a more varied basis amongst uh, the the judges in terms of their previous jobs. But I fear that also judges with with different kinds of backgrounds that they have been socialized into a Supreme Court. 
that that has state friendliness uh, integrated in its core. And although we have had some cases where where the Supreme Court has found uh, against the state and for, uh, for example, a private person, uh, there, there, there has been uh, discussions, uh, and there has also been some research done on this that uh, the Norwegian Supreme Court tends to find for for the state. When it comes to this case in particular, I think that the Supreme Court has uh, gone right, uh, continued on the same track as the Norwegian state has done uh, in general. By, by using uh, the same kind of arguments that avoid going into, into the case as such. They found it too difficult to deal with. They were probably too worried about what the consequences would be for, uh, for the Norwegian economy, and they didn't dare to do their jobs properly. That is why I have lost my respect for those uh, judges who were in majority. But can we compare this case to the Norwegian Hempel case? with Hempel cases. We saw in those cases that it's possible for the courts to be powerful too in environmental fight. Yes, that's a very interesting comparison. So in the Norwegian uh, Hempel cases, the Supreme Court uh, showed that it can be uh, a guardian of the environment. But the Hempel cases were not a case uh, between environmental organizations and the state. It was uh, a case between uh, the the environmental uh, branch of the Norwegian government, to to simplify it a bit, and uh, a da Danish parent company, Hempen. So uh, the the case uh, concerned probably totally legal pollution of the ground that was done by a paint factory um, over a hundred years ago at least, um, and uh, uh, that paint factory or its uh, predecessor was uh, was later controlled by the uh, Danish uh, parent company, Hempel. And in that case, the, the Norwegian environmental authorities went uh, to the parent company um, and opened a case against the parent company because they saw that that was where there was money. Um, to to pay first of all for 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 finding out the the uh, extent of the pollution of the ground and secondly for for cleaning up uh, that pollution. The Hempel case in 2010 is a very very interesting Supreme Court decision, and uh, although we don't know what kind of uh, uh, significance that had, uh, there there were uh, there were only female uh, judges, if I remember correctly, or at least the majority of female judges. I think it was five, five women who, who decided that case. And they had in that case a very open discussion of the importance of allowing limited liability uh, companies, which gives um, a limited liability for shareholders. So in this case, a parent company that uh, as a starting point is not responsible for the debts of, of the company, in this case, the subsidiary, uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, the societal interests of protecting the environment. So they had a very open discussion of these principles, of these, these economic uh, objectives, the, these uh, social economic reasons for, for having limited liability companies, which has, have been so important 
uh, around the world for, for developing industry and the importance of protecting the environment. And they found uh, that the Danish parent company, Hempel, who had not been involved in the pollution of the ground because they came in as a parent company after that pollution was concluded, that they were responsible to pay the cleanup costs. So that was a very brave decision and a very interesting decision. And compare it uh, to, to the plenary decision of the Supreme Court in the climate lawsuit, we see that the, the court can be a guardian of the environment, but apparently not if it has to do that to the detriment of the Norwegian state. Yeah, and no, it's uh, funny you brought up the all-female uh, panel there. Uh, so I was wondering if you could perhaps relate that to your work on gender diversity in boardrooms and maybe um, uh, put it into perspective as to what role corporations and uh, uh, boardrooms and shareholder activism can have in the, the, in the way forward against climate change. Mm. Yes, uh, so the... Um, one of the interesting things that the Norwegian uh, state uh, has done when it comes to, to business is uh, to adopt a rule that makes it obligatory for all public uh, companies uh, to have, uh, to simplify it, 40% of each gender in the boardroom. Um, and that was uh, a, a legislation that was... Uh, um, and there were, there were a lot of protests against it. It was seen as very controversial at the time, uh, but it was uh, was adopted and uh, and implemented. And as a result, we have much more gender diverse corporate boards in public companies in Norway than we had before that uh, that legislation. And there we again see Norway's role as a global actor, because that. Uh, that uh, legislation that was um, uh, implemented around 15 years ago, that has uh, sparked an international debate uh, around the world where country after country has considered including similar provisions. Often they do it in a weaker way than the Norwegian uh, legislator did where it's actually a duty um, that can be enforced, but, but it has really changed things around the world. Um, and I think that is important uh, in light of the uh, fundamental transition that our societies need to go through, where business also has a key role. Uh, not because I believe that, that all women are uh, more long-term in their thinking and think more about people in the, and the environment when they make uh, business decisions, uh, and nor do I believe that all men only think about uh, short-term narrow maximization of returns for investors but i believe in breaking up groupthink and um, and to put it a little bit to a point when i've spoken uh, about this uh, legislation uh, in internationally at conferences and so on i've said that the result of the uh, of the legislation was uh, that uh, that uh, white uh, middle-aged men from oslo west were replaced by a more diverse uh, set of women. Um, and, I, and I believe it has that breaking up of the group think uh, effect. And I believe that we can also see that same kind of effect in the courts. So uh, law uh, has been very male dominated and bringing in more women then opens up for, for different uh, 
types of thinking. So I think it's important, but I don't think it's enough in, in any way. Could you also maybe talk a little bit about your work uh, on profits and shareholders and the status of shareholder activism? Yes, so what we are seeing, uh, well, I can maybe start by saying that uh, what, what I have found in uh, the uh, comparative um, uh, legal analysis that I've done with many colleagues around the world is that a main barrier to uh, business uh, shifting over to a more sustainable way of, uh, uh, of operating is what we refer to as the shareholder primacy drive. And by that, we mean uh, this um, very strong social norm that, um, has, that says that shareholders own companies and that it is the duty of the board and by extension senior management to uh, maximize uh, the returns for shareholders. This is, a, this is a social norm that has become so strong that it has become a legal myth. So, so many think that that is uh, what, uh, what company law says. It isn't what company law says. Uh, company law gives a lot of discretion to boards and management to decide how business should operate, but the social norm has taken over, uh, over that space. And uh, the, there is an emerging uh, recognition uh, also uh, in, uh, in, in finance, also amongst investors, that um, focusing on uh, short-term maximization of returns in the narrow way that it has been done is bad for them too. So it is the, the financial risks of uh, unsustainability are incre increasingly being recognized. So shareholders are now being more active in, in general meetings and in direct conversations with, uh, with boards and senior management and asking business or demanding that business be more sustainable. Uh, both because uh, they more and more realize that, uh, that if we continue on the very unsustainable path we are on now, we risk societal collapse. And in, in, uh, in uh, societies that have broken down, uh, there is very little hope of uh, stable and good returns on investments. And of course, many of these shareholders, they care about the environment because they care about people. They, they have some of those uh, old white men that have been sitting on uh, in various uh, decisions of power for a long time. They have grandchildren and they start thinking about what kind of future they, they are uh, leaving for their grandchildren. So there are many reasons for this um, shareholder activism for, for sustainability that, uh, that is emerging. And it is a driver, but it isn't enough. Um, and uh, we need more change within business and within um, the, uh, the decision-making that is made uh, on behalf of uh, some of the most powerful invest investors that aren't physical persons, but that are large pension funds and other forms of institutional investors. We need sustainability really integrated into, into their decisions. So, there are a lot of there are a lot of uh, positive signs that uh, the need for this fundamental transition that it is more and more understood. But if I were to sum up the status now, I would say that there is too much talk about sustainability and uh, too little actual uh, action for sustainability properly understood.
And uh, mentioning the corporate sustainability brings us to our next question. Uh, we have seen this, this year that the District Court of Hague ordered Royal Dutch Shell to reduce its CO2 emissions by 2030 as compared with 2019 levels. Uh, do you think that this decision could have significant consequences for other companies that have significant CO2 emissions? Yes, the, the international trend of lawsuits against both state and companies uh, is a very good example of this, uh, um, this, the, these risks of unsustainability that are being realized. So uh, people and organizations around the world uh, are using the courts uh, as the safety valve to try to, uh, to achieve a sustainable future. And although many of these cases are rejected uh, for procedural reasons, and uh, some cases that are not rejected for procedural reasons are lost by the environmental organizations, as we saw in the Norwegian climate lawsuit uh, so far, uh, there are also cases uh, that are won, and some of them are really groundbreaking, like uh, the Dutch uh, Shell case. Uh, the Dutch Shell case is, uh, is a very powerful example, uh, not only because uh, it, um, uh, it's, it says that Shell has to reduce its climate gas emissions, but also because it goes beyond the one legal entity. It doesn't say that uh, the one company uh, in the huge corporate group of Shell companies needs to reduce its climate gas emissions, but it says uh, that, uh, that the, the group as a whole needs to do that. Uh, and the, this is happening in, in various uh, sustainability cases around the world that this, um, um, the protection that uh, the, the principle of limited liability has given to shareholders, including to parent companies, is, uh, is being broken through uh, by, by brave courts. So, so we, we are in a, in, in a phase where things are changing very rapidly. Uh, and I'm hopeful that, uh, that they will lead to uh, sufficient uh, change for sustainability quickly enough. Also because uh, people in business, thought leaders in business, are seeing all of these changes that are happening. They're seeing that the changes that are happening in environmental, in, the, in natural science, in the natural environment. They are seeing the changes that are happening in the courts. They are seeing that country after country is actually making some changes in the legislation, like even Norway has done with its Transparency Act, um, to, to change uh, the legal infrastructure for business. And they, re they are increasingly realizing that uh, they need to work with, um, with uh, policymakers to try to get a good legal infrastructure into place if they are going to have a level playing field for, uh, for business that, uh, um, that contributes to the transformation to sustainability for the sake of the world and for the sake of their own business. Uh, so contrasting this to the Norwegian uh, climate case then, I am a no legal scholar, but I feel that the language of section 112 is really clear in, uh, in what it tries to establish and yet the court d dismissed that right. Uh, how would you compare that to, uh, to the climate activism in other countries? Do they have a such uh, clear language to go after? Or are they breaking through in the courts even though their language is not as clear as we have? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. I think we, we see here how law can be really powerful or it can be meaningless. So you can have a really clear provision in the constitution, but if the courts don't, uh, don't protect that, then, then it's meaningless. And then you can have less powerful language and the courts can inter interpret that and fill it with content so that it comes, becomes powerful. And Norway is not the only, doesn't have the only constitution in the world that is powerful when it comes to um, environmental protection and sustainability. South Africa is, uh, for example, another constitution, uh, another country that has a powerful constitution. And that is also um, where the courts have also uh, seen their role as a guardian of the constitution and protected it. But we're seeing development country after country is getting stronger constitutions when it comes to, to environmental issues. So there are a lot of things going in the right direction, but it's not a seamless, seamless path towards sustainability. And unfortunately, the Norwegian climate lawsuit is an example of a, uh, of a quite serious bump in the road when it comes to trying to change things in Norway. Since we are approaching the end of the interview, we wanted to discuss in the end about the legal system's role in climate activism and what are the benefits and limitations of using the legal system as an activist tool? Yes, uh, thank you. Thank you for that question. So I think uh, if we look into the future and imagine that we have achieved sustainability, then it's going to, there, there has been a jigsaw puzzle uh, that has been put into place. And uh, legal activism is, is one of those pieces. So I believe that the international trend of lawsuits against both states and business plays an important role. But I don't believe that we can achieve sustainability through the courts only for a number of reasons. It's expensive and time consuming, uh, and in some cases also risky to go to the courts. And uh, although a positive uh, decision by a court can have very uh, broad uh, knock-on effects um, that that can that can have uh, that can protect the environment much more broadly than the individual case. As a rule, court cases deal with one individual issue, and uh, it would take too long for for. Uh, the world to, to shift towards sustainability by trying every aspect of the unsustainable societies that we are in now, case by case, in the courts. But it is an important piece. Uh, the political system is also another important piece, and uh, I keep hoping that we will see more uh, really groundbreaking shifts in, uh, in political uh, elections uh, than we have seen in, uh, in Norway uh, so far general activism uh, by, uh, by various organizations is also an important part of that. And the media plays a super important role. Uh, the media is increasingly, although it is still, um, still too much caught up by this, we're going to give both sides of the, uh, of the story, uh, but they are increasingly uh, seeing that they need to be clear on what the science is and not give this false impression of a debate by, by uh, uh, referring to what 99% uh, of scientists say and then by some, uh, some rather crazy people trying to argue against it. Uh, so the, the, the media plays a role, 
but as with all systems, the media isn't playing its role well enough. Business plays an important role. Um, up to now, it has been mainly playing the role of keeping us on a very unsustainable path. But we are starting to see change there as well. And academics play a role. So um, academics need to go out of their comfort zone and, uh, and dare to, to speak truth to power, even if they are then accused of being political or activists or communists, or to mention just a few of the labels that have been attempted pinned on me over the years. I was um, going to say. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, so, but I mean, there, there is a major change. I've been working in this area since I started in my on my doctoral thesis in 2003. When I started working on that, I was told in no uncertain terms that you cannot write a doctoral thesis about European company law, about company law, and include anything about the human rights and the environment. You're in the wrong department. Uh, it's the wrong topic. Nobody has done that before. Again, this backward looking, nobody has done it before, therefore it cannot be done, which also illustrates the silo thinking in much of law and policy and, and politics. That is amazing. Yes. Um, I invited the professor who said that most clearly to me to my doctoral dinner uh, and said that there are two ways of inspiring me. One is saying, good, keep going. And another one is, is saying that you can't do that. It's impossible. So I thanked him in public for inspiring me in the latter way. Uh, but uh, uh, I have been uh, regarded as being on the fringe of company law in my emphasis on sustainability. Also, when I have done groundbreaking or coordinated groundbreaking comparative legal research across jurisdictions. But this has changed really over the last few years. I'm now, I think, as the first Norwegian on the European Commission's expert group on, uh, on company law, which is a reflection of the work uh, that, uh, that, uh, that my research group and I have uh, coordinated in these areas. So there has never been more attention to these issues than there are now. Now we just need for that to be taken seriously and followed up all over the, the, the board. We'll cross our fingers for that to happen, of course. So I think that's been a, a really fruitful conversation and really interesting. So we thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. It's uh, been a real pleasure. Well, thank you for doing that. And I'm sorry I didn't mention students. I meant to mention students as well, but you can see yourself as included amongst activists, if you like, because it has been students that have inspired me from, uh, from the beginning. There's been much more interest in what I've been talking about among students than there has been amongst um, my, my senior colleagues in the, in the early years. And there is no place that I've seen the change that has happened over the last decade or decade and a half as clearly as I have seen uh, when I'm speaking with students. So keep up the good work. Thank you. Yes, so that was our interview with Professor Beate Schofje. I think this was a great interview because she has such a powerful and coherent critique. Uh, I don't know what you took out of this, uh, Eva. Yes, I agree with you. I have a few things to emphasize. Uh, first, Professor said that when Norwegian state decided to give licenses, that decided to continue to give licenses, that uh, they practically went 
beyond what they had discretion to do and that that was a clear violation of the constitution and the Paris Agreement, uh, which is um, maybe interesting to connect to the fact that Norway was once country which brought the principle of sustainable development and now is destroying its reputation, as the professor said. Um, maybe as a final thought, um, I like the description of a legal activism as a piece of a puzzle together with media and courts and politicians and so on yeah because uh, she she really had a direct and condemning uh comments of the of the court and their decisions so i think that was just re really great and interesting to to listen to uh all the knowledge she has on uh, on this topic and she also talked about the the weakness of the environmental report and i think that's uh also extremely interesting which is why in the next episode we will be talking to uh to economics professors uh, just about this uh impact report that was done before opening up the fields so please join us in the next episode to learn even more about that